Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, the weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called America's Presidential Election and the Public Face of God's Purpose. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, November 11th, 2012. The lectionary readings for this week collide with the newspaper headlines in a marvelous mashup. As Americans vote for their president this Tuesday, the Spirit of God speaks to the church through the ancient poet in Psalm 146, 3 and 4. Do not put your trust in princes, in mortal men who cannot save. When their spirit departs, they return to the ground. On that very day, their plans come to nothing. The only place in Scripture where God laughs is at the pretensions of political power. <clears throat> Psalm 2, verse 4. I'll vote on Tuesday, but with little enthusiasm or hope. It's hard to have hope when you see the financial influence of lobbyists and super PACs, bipartisan bickering, the reduction of media to sound bites, and the corrosive nature of our civic discourse. Before I'll vote, I vote, I'll remind myself of the Credo by Father Daniel Berrigan. Listen to his Credo. I can only tell you what I believe. I believe I cannot be saved by foreign policies. I cannot be saved by the sexual revolution. I cannot be saved by the gross national product. I cannot be saved by nuclear deterrence. I cannot be saved by aldermen, priests, artists, plumbers, city planners, social engineers, nor by the Vatican, nor by the World Buddhist Association, nor by Hitler, nor by Joan of Arc, nor by angels and archangels, nor by powers and dominions. I can be saved only by Jesus Christ. We might add to Berrigan's credo, I cannot be saved by Barack Obama, Mitt Romney, Congress, the Supreme Court, or the Pentagon. To think this way isn't defeatist, it's realistic. And in an age when politics define everything, it's also heretical. After I vote, I'll pivot to Walter Brueggemann's poem. It's called Post-Election Day. You, creator God, who has ordered us in families and communities, in clans and tribes, in states and nations, you, Creator God, who enacts your governance in ways overt and in ways hidden. You exercise your will for peace and for justice and for freedom. We give you thanks for the peaceable order of our nation and for the chance of choosing, all the, all the manipulative money notwithstanding. We pray now for new governance that your will and purpose may prevail that our leaders may have a sense of justice and goodness. That we as citizens may care about the public face of your purpose. 
We pray in the name of Jesus, who was executed by the authorities. With so little hope for meaningful change, it would be easy to abandon politics altogether. But citizenship is a privilege and responsibility that we enjoy. We dare not abandon the public arena and the greater civic good. Thank God for all those who've served our city councils and school boards. Our ultimate citizenship is in heaven, says the Apostle Paul. Thus, our allegiance to the gospel should be absolute and unconditional, whereas our allegiance to Caesar will always be relative and conditional. Nonetheless, as citizens of the world, we care about what Brueggemann calls the public face of God's purpose. The readings this week give us glimpses of what the public purpose might look like. The maker of heaven and earth, says Psalm 146, is biased on behalf of the oppressed. He feeds the hungry, frees prisoners, and heals the blind. He lifts up those who are weighted down. He defends the foreigners, protects the orphan, and sustains the widow. These eight categories of people face different challenges, but what makes them similar is that they are all vulnerable to forces beyond their control. As if to reinforce this point, the reading this week tell the stories of five widows. The book of Ruth is a story about three widows the Israelite Naomi, who fled Israel to Moab to escape famine, and her two foreign daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth. After ten years in foreign Moab, and despite Naomi's protests, Ruth returned with her to Israel. In Bethlehem, Ruth was the foreigner from an enemy country. She was childless. She was widowed from a mixed marriage. But she vowed to cling to Naomi, her Hebrew people, and to their God. Ruth secured an economic livelihood for her mother-in-law by gleaning fields among the hired hands. She ingratiated herself to Boaz, the owner of the fields she gleaned. And all Bethlehem knew this foreign widow, as it says in 3.11, a woman of excellence. <clears throat> like Ruth, the widow of Zarephath in 1 Kings 17 lived at a pivotal juncture in Israel's history. In his book, The Kings and Their Gods, Daniel Berrigan interprets 1 and 2 Kings as self-serving imperial records that portray Israel's kings as they saw themselves and wanted to be seen by others. God favors my regime. He hates my enemies. There's one political imperative in the book of Kings, says Barakin. Outside the empire, there's no salvation. The kings employ many pathological means to this end. Imperial ego, political retaliation, military might, revisionist history, 
manipulation of memory and time, grandiose building projects, economic exploitation, virulent nationalism, and sanctioning it all with divine approval, legitimation by religious psychophants. A few dissenting voices objected to imperial power, but they were silenced as unpatriotic and seditious. The prophet Elijah was one such exception. He was a lonely prophet, alternately manic and reclusive, who faced down the political powers of his day. And interestingly, his story begins with a foreign widow from Zarephath in Sidon, who at great personal sacrifice cares for him during a severe drought, and who in turn is cared for by Elijah. This narrative of a nameless alien widow and a Hebrew prophet offering each other mutual care across nationalistic boundaries assumes such central importance in Israel's sacred storytelling that Jesus repeated it a thousand years later. And the impact was the same. The listeners were outraged at the role reversals. We read in Luke 4, 25-28, I assure you that there were many widows in Israel's time and in, in Israel in Elijah's time, said Jesus, when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. <coughs> the fifth widow epitomizes the reversals and subversions of political power in God's kingdom. That God cares for widows and that his people should too, are prominent themes throughout the Bible. The Greek word for widow occurs about 25 times in the New Testament. In this story, though, the fifth nameless widow, she's the one who's the extravagant benefactor instead of the vulnerable beneficiary. At the temple, Jesus observed many rich people making large donations. In stark contrast, this poor widow's gift amounted to only a fraction of a penny. But whereas the rich gave out of the convenience of their surplus, Jesus said this widow has given more than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. So what is what Brueggemann calls the public face of God's purpose to which he calls us? Proverbs 31, 8 and 9 puts it this way. Speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves, for the rights of all who were destitute. Speak up and judge fairly. Defend the rights of the poor and needy. For book 
books this week, I review Michael Walzer. The title, In God's Shadow, Politics in the Hebrew Bible, New Haven, Yale University Press, 2012, 232 pages. When Michael Walzer, born 1935, says that he reads the Hebrew Bible like an ordinary reader, what he means is that he's not a biblical scholar by training. But he's anything but an ordinary reader. He's Professor Emeritus at Princeton's Institute for Advanced Study and one of the leading political theorists and public intellectuals in the country. And although he admits that he has only a schoolboy's knowledge of Hebrew, He's been reading the Bible for over 70 years, and his footnotes show that he's well-versed in the scholarly literature. He's written an extraordinary book aimed at a general readership and characterized by lucid prose. Walzer has written a biblical theology that starts with Genesis and proceeds through Israel's unfolding history and literature. Successive chapters explore the covenants, the legal codes, the conquest and holy wars, the kings and prophets, exile and priests, wisdom literature, and finally messianism. He continually teases out the various nuances and layers of the biblical narrative. For example, Israel began with two different but related covenants one with Abraham based upon kinship, family, and birthright as a chosen people, and another with Moses based upon a legal covenant, a nation, law, and a people who might be chosen, but who also must freely choose. Walzer's most provocative emphasis is that while the Hebrew Bible contains a lot about politics, it isn't really interested in politics. Rather, it presents us with a radical anti-politics. Since God is sovereign, Caesar is secondary. The prophets, for example, are poets of social justice and the most important form of public speech in Israel, but they're not political activists with any program. With their emphasis on divine intention, as opposed to human wisdom, the prophets exemplify the Hebrews' radical denial of the doctrine of self-help. The prophets disdain politics. In contrast to Greek philosophers, the biblical writers never attach great value to politics as a way of life. Politics is simply not recognized by the biblical writers as a centrally important or humanly fulfilling activity. In place of radically relativized politics, the Hebrew Bible commends an ethic or way of life. Micah 6.8 comes to mind. Do justice, love kindness, walk humbly. Protect the weak. Feed the poor, free the slaves, welcome the alien. Free individuals will make choices that result in good or bad society. 
And needless to say, human experience shows a mixed record in this regard. Still, however complex our choices, the sovereign God calls each one of us to a larger community that's characterized by what Walter calls fellow feeling. That is, we trust ourselves to God alone, but we're also responsible for each other. For film this week, I review a documentary movie called Happy from 2011. Are you happy? Or, alternately, what would make you happy? This documentary by writer-director Rocco Bellick begins in a muddy slum of Kolkata, India, where a rickshaw driver named Manoj Singh exudes happiness. He says, My home is good. We live well. And at that, he points to some sticks covered by a tarp. When I come home from work and my son greets me, I feel like I'm not poor, but the richest person in the world. My neighbors are good. We stay together. We're all friends. Bellick's film then takes us to 14 countries, including Brazil, Bhutan, Denmark, and Japan, where they actually have a special word, karoshi, for people who die from overwork. The experts interviewed in the film point to simple but intentional behaviors, like family, friends, and exercise. The film then ends where it began, in Kolkata, where a former German banker named Andy Wimmer has worked at Mother Teresa's home for the destitute and dying for 17 years. Why? Because it's so fulfilling. It makes him happy. This film is full of powerful life wisdom. I watched it on Netflix streaming. The title of the film, Happy. And finally, for poetry this week, and for the election, in following Walzer's ideas about politics, we've posted a poem from Origen. It's from his book, Against Celsus, book number eight, chapter 73. Origen writes, And as we, by our prayers, vanquish all the demons that stir up war and lead to the violation of oaths and disturb the peace, we in this service are much more helpful to the kings than those who go into the field to fight for them. We do take part in public affairs when along with righteous prayers we practice self-denying disciplines and meditations which teach us to despise pleasures and not to be led astray by them. None fight better for the king and his role of preserving justice than we do. We do not indeed fight under him, although he demands it, but we fight on his behalf, forming a special army of piety by offering our prayers to God. Origin from the third century. 
Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, November 11th, 2012. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. 